Amen. Please be seated. This morning, you don't need to uh, turn to your Bibles, but rather you'll note that I have provided for you the lyrics for Handel's Messiah, and it has there the verses I will read to begin. Then we'll have, this will be a different Sunday, as innovative as you know I am with all the techniques and things that I uh, bring into the worship service. Uh, this will be a, an interesting extravaganza of multimedia here at Redeemer. I'm going to actually leave this pulpit in a few moments because I want to sing some of these portions to you, and I want to be there down on the bass level so you can hear my voice. Yeah, if you didn't laugh earlier than that, you're all in trouble. I want to actually be able to sit, because we are going to listen to a few pieces of Messiah uh, performed by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, fortunately, and not myself. Uh, but I would like to read first the five verses that begin the 40th chapter of Isaiah from the King James Version, the version Handel used when he wrote Messiah, or rather when Charles Jennings wrote the words and then Handel used to set them to music. Hear now God's holy, inspired, infallible Word, Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 5. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall be made straight. And the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Let us pray. Lord God, thank you for sending Jesus. Lord, I pray that at this particular season, these two weeks of focus upon your word, specially arranged, that we would be renewed, revived in our spirit, excited once again that you have redeemed us and that we would be equipped to tell this story. Though we may not be able to tell it the way Handel told it, we can tell the story of Christ. And I pray that this would be what we are propelled to do as a result of the focus on your word today and every day. In Christ's name, amen. It should be the ambition of every follower of Christ to tell, to tell the world about Messiah. That is exactly what Handel was thinking when he wrote. He wanted to tell the story of Christ. That is the point of the Messiah. You know that most of us are familiar with just the first section of Messiah. We hear the first section, and then the Hallelujah Chorus is put onto it. The Messiah is written in three sections. It take about three hours to do from beginning to end. The first section is about preparing through prophecy for Messiah to come. It then declares that Jesus has come, for unto us a child is born. The second section is about his passion, his life, his obedience, his death, and his resurrection, and his ascension. That's where the Hallelujah Chorus fits. It's in the second section. The third section is a hymn of thanksgiving about the ultimate triumph of God and glorification. This is Handel's way of telling the world about Christ. I think he succeeded. To date, Messiah 
is the most performed, most recorded, most listened to chorus ever in the history of the world. Yet, the man who wrote the words, not Handel, he was disappointed when he heard it the first time. He heard it and he said, well, I'm not going to give him any more of my scriptural arrangements if this is what he does with it. I want us to listen first to the overture of Messiah. And as you listen, even if you're not familiar with Messiah, listen closely. I'll bet you most of you will recognize a portion of this. recognize that song? How many recognize it from Messiah first? Where do you recognize it second? Renewing your mind from R.C. Sproul. Many of you have come to the church through Sproul's ministry. This is the song that he plays uh, in all his, all his introductions. More importantly than that, this is the beginning to Handel's telling of the story of Christ. Handel at age seven had already learned how to play the harpsichord. He learned the pipe organ a year after that, and at age nine, he
he was composing. God calls certain people to do some special things. Bach said about Handel that if I were not Bach, Handel is the one who I most wish I could be. How's that for a humble statement? You know, Mozart and Beethoven all had similar kinds of comments about Handel's genius. Now, modern musicologists will criticize him for using priorly written tunes and using them in Messiah, but they're his tunes. And he used them, and in 24 days, he wrote, composed, taking the words given to him by Charles Jennings, Messiah, as we have it today. Now, I want you to look at the words. This is what makes Messiah endearing. The reason why it's powerful, the reason why God continues to use this composition is because it's utterly reliant upon Scripture. God uses, of course, the talents of Handel to be able to match mood with the words, but this arrangement and this flow, this survey of redemptive history that is given to us in Messiah is second to none as human compositions go. Look at the first verses as the first movement is comfort ye. It comes directly from Isaiah 40. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. Saith your God, speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem, this is a, a metonymy where the part for the whole is referred to, and this is the seat of the king. This is referring to the whole nation who is in such desperate need of comfort at a time like this. Continuing, and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned. Verse 3, the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight the desert, in the desert a highway for our God. Now remember the situation in Isaiah to fully appreciate Messiah and why it's used here. Isaiah is writing at the end of a very, uh, very hard epic in the life of the northern kingdom. You remember that the kingdom of Israel, God's people, was split into two. Uh, the northern kingdom had apostatized, walked away from God, sinned earlier than the southern kingdom did. And the northern kingdom was disciplined by God through the nation of Assyria and taken captive. And during Isaiah's day, in the beginning of his ministry, that whole nation watched that happen. They watched their northern counterparts fall to this oppression from the Assyrians. And they were depressed and they were concerned because they looked around in their own nation. The church at that time looked around at the church and said, oh, we have become darkness. We're on the same path. It seems almost inevitable that we're going that same direction. And Isaiah's ministry spans the fall of the northern kingdom into the beginning of the digression of the southern kingdom. So they're depressed. They're discouraged. They need a word of encouragement. God sends Isaiah in his ministry in a horrible time when King Uzziah dies to give a picture of what God will ultimately do for his people. He will ultimately bring them consolation. He'll bring them a final end to the wars. And they won't be these physical wars any longer. This war against sin that they are losing will be met in the one that will be sent. And this is the ultimate comfort that the prophet could give. This is the start, in essence of telling the particulars about what was prophesied back in the book of Genesis. Look at the fourth verse. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and every hill made low, the crooked straight and the rough places plain. All the obstacles that they had become so attuned to, their own sin, the attack of the world, the obstacles would be made low, and God would accomplish this. The zeal of God would make this happen, that Messiah would come. And you notice back in verse 3 of Isaiah 40, you have a prophecy of John the Baptist who would come. We know this because Malachi repeats the same prophecy. Then the book of Mark identifies John as the fulfillment of this prophecy. And then John the Baptist himself. And John says, 
I am the voice that cries in the wilderness. Now, appreciate this, brothers and sisters, please, that Isaiah was written 700 years before this happened. How old is America? We think it's old. 700 years before particulars are starting to be given about Messiah. When Haggai is written, another prophet that is referred to in Messiah, that's 500 years before Christ comes. That's 200 years between Haggai and Isaiah. That's a, a huge span, span of time. And then Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, 450 years before Christ actually comes. Now, only one who is bent against the supernatural cannot see how God has worked this, how God has done this. Here's the question. Why did God do this? Why did, why did God bring redemption? Let's listen to In the Glory of the Lord because Handel gets it exactly right. This is why. Handel got this. We need to get it again. This is what it's about. 
in the whole of Messiah transpires from that point. To understand this oratory, you have to gather the presupposition that the author has, what the Bible has, that it's for God's glory that men and women are made right with God. And that's why we tell the story. That's why we tell the message. Now, you notice the effect that Handel uses. It's kind of unique to him. That is, he makes the music, and for those of us who are musically uh, challenged, uh, this has been very exciting for me to study. The method he uses, even when he says the mouth of... He uses kind of this picture in the music itself, or every valley is made low and the voice gets lower. And he uses this effect that just draws you in in a way that's different than other composers. He really makes it come alive. In fact, uh, I love this quote from Mozart, of all people. Handel understands effect better than any of us. It's a big statement from Mozart. When he chooses, he strikes like a thunderbolt. This is what we certainly gather here as we consider the glory of the Lord. That's the purpose for redemption, and everything unfolds in Messiah from there. Look with me now. The next section is, Thus saith the Lord, and it comes from Haggai and Malachi, two other Old Testament prophets. Look at Haggai 2, 6 and 7. They're printed for you. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Yet once a little while and I will, a little while and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. This is a picture of the coming of Christ. And the shaking he does uh, doesn't maybe seem like much in that small area in the world at that time, but the ripple effect is unprecedented by any other person in history. When he comes and goes into the temple, his temple, and he begins his public ministry, it sends an effect wave throughout all the world from that point in Jerusalem. You know later when the, the disciples are told to go to the uttermost parts of the world, they start in Jerusalem. And it starts right from there where Jesus comes, just as he's prophesied, and the world is shook up because of it ever since. And the desire of all nations come. Now recognize this. He's the desire of all nations, not just that one nation. And that one nation at that time had to hear that message. They were trying to look for Messiah to somehow release them from their earthly toils. And that was a very ethnocentric thing for them. But the reminder in the prophets of old is that, no, he'll be the desire of all the nations. In fact, when Abraham was promised that he would be made a great nation, he would also be what? A blessing to the nations. This is fulfilled in Christ. He's the Savior of all men and women who turn to him. matters not from what segment of society you're part of, uh, what your background is, uh, what your race is, what your belonging is, your intelligence is, your education is. He's the desire of all nations. And this is why the language is used in Malachi. Look at Malachi 3, verse 1. They're listed under the fifth section of Messiah. The Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Even, notice the title for Jesus now, the messenger of the covenant. Whom ye delight in, behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. The messenger of the covenant, the one who would come to fulfill the covenant of old that had been promised. And do you remember the great picture when Jesus goes into the temple, he opens up the scroll and he reads from Isaiah. And after reading it, he says, today in your presence, this has been fulfilled. The desire of the nations had come into his temple, his temple, not their temple, his temple. But who may abide the day of his coming? Uh, this picture of Messiah coming is one that shakes up the earth in Malachi 3, the second verse. But who may abide the day of his coming and who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire. When Christ came, that's when the kingdom came. We're not still waiting for the kingdom to come. The kingdom came with Christ. 
He intrudes in this, and now ever since, it's been different. It's been totally different. And wherever Jesus is, purification happens. It happened first where? Among the priests, the ones who are supposed to be telling the gospel. And he comes there first. And a refiner's fire is lit and purity starts to come. And it will continue to come. I know we get down, brothers and sisters, about the situation. And I was, Brandon was reading about the darkness. And there's darkness that's spoken of here soon. But don't forget that it's lighter now than it was then. You say it's been bad. Listen, if you look at the globe and show it as dark and then show all the gospel light, there's far more light on the earth now than there was then. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. And purification comes where Jesus is. Let's listen to And He Shall Purify to hear this sung. would bring purity, would bring purification, but how would he come? That's where this wonderful prophecy of Isaiah 7, verse 14, look there, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. This is powerful on many levels. They're looking for some other earthly judge to come, right? Another priest, another king, give us another prophet, God. In essence, he says, no, I'm coming. They failed. 
we need a prophet, we need a priest, and we need a king to end all those offices. The only one that could do it is God. So God himself comes. The profundity of where this is starting to develop as you read scripture, that it will be God himself who will come to be Messiah, starts to take over this wonderful composition. In fact, one of the things that's most difficult for me, and I know you musically uh, literate and appreciative people may not agree, but I can't stand to listen to Messiah sung by the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. Can't stand it. This is about the deity of Jesus. This is about God coming to save us. Sorry. I'm sticking with Chicago Symphony Orchestra. In our choir very soon. Won't be long. Look at the development of the joy that then comes of contemplating that God is going to come himself. God will be with us in a way that is unprecedented. Isaiah 40, verse 9. Oh, that tell us good tidings to Zion. Get thee up into thy high mountain. Go tell it in the mountains. O thou that tellest good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up and be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Isaiah 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, for thy light is come. And the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. We have such impetus, brothers and sisters, to tell the story of redemption. To go to the mountaintop and tell it. Now please understand, we don't have to beg anyone for anything. We need to proclaim the message. I will never beg a person to receive Jesus, but I will tell them about Jesus. And when they're confronted with Christ, when darkness meets light, there will be a confrontation. There will be something that happens there that is of God. And it will be for his glory. Behold, the darkness shall cover the earth. This is that that state that would be at its worst right at the time that Messiah comes. Look at verse 2 and verse 3 of Isaiah 60 as part of the 10th songed in Messiah, for behold, darkness shall cover the earth and gross darkness, the people, but the Lord shall rise upon thee and his glory shall be seen upon thee and the Gentiles shall come to thy light and kings to the brightness of thy rising. Please understand that Handel understood this to be a prophecy of the first coming of Christ. And I agree with him. It was at its worst at the time Jesus came. We think, well, how could it be worse than it is? It's way worse than it is today. I mean, all the empire was fixed against God. Darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. Yes, there's still lots of darkness, but the light has come. Look at the 11th movement, the people that walked in darkness. Now it gets personal. It's not just this general systemic darkness, but now Isaiah 9, verse 2, the people that walked in darkness, they have seen a great light, and they dwell in the land of the shadow of death. Upon them hath the light shined. You know, there's a few, few things that are more depressing than not being able to see. Now, I try not to ever bring any kind of hunting analogies into a sermon. But I've set up tree stands and thought about them all year, about I'm going to hunt that on that first day, and then couldn't find it because it was dark. I won't say I cried over it, but I was upset and just discouraged that all this planning anticipation, and I couldn't find it because it was dark. A little light would have let me see it. Well, there's nothing more discouraging and depressing and demeaning than to know where or not you are going. And that's the state of man apart from God shed light. No one even has a little crack of light if it's not for God giving it. And that's the ultimate worst it can be. And then he sends forth light into the world. Let's listen to For Unto Us a Child is Born. 
the first section of Messiah has given us the prophecy, and then in a, in a soft but beautiful section of the composition, look at the verses that are included. It goes to the account of Luke, which I hope, by the way, you read every year as a family, when it's time to celebrate together Christmas, that you would read together, that your children would have memorized Luke 2 over their lives with you as a family. Look what it says. There were shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. I mean, how simple is that after uh, 700 years of prophetic looking forward to anticipation? And then their shepherds abiding in a field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. Lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were, of course, sore afraid. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, Savior, 
which is Christ the Lord. Centuries of prophecy wrapped up in this announcement. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. The key again, the glory of God and the coming Messiah for redemption. Now, Handel takes us back out to prophecy again, showing what we know has happened and been fulfilled by the New Testament witness. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Zechariah is referred to in the ninth chapter. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is the righteous Savior, and he shall speak peace unto the heathen. You noticed earlier that the child was called Prince of Peace. Please understand, we all want peace today. None of us want to see the wars that happen, but this is more profound than that kind of peace. Uh, The peace that's spoken of here, whenever you talk about Jesus, is the ultimate peace that comes when we're finally at a truce, not just a truce, that we're finally in adoption with our Father, not at war with Him. Uh, We have to be honest that if we're not for God or if we're uh, not sure that we're still at war with him, we're not just uh, neutral, we're at war with him because we have rejected his son, saying that we've rejected the idea that we need him for redemption. The war stops by God's grace when we're at peace with God through Christ. That's the ultimate prince of peace. Now, don't get me wrong. It has a practical effect. That will be what brings real peace. That's what stops wars, is that kind of peace. The eyes of the blind, speaking now of the earthly ministry that Jesus would have, predicted, prophesied in Isaiah 35. Look what it says. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as, as in heart, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. All can be pointed to in the New Testament, Jesus' ministry, as being fulfilled. Exactly the way it was prophesied. That we would know this is Messiah. Not only would he do these miraculous things, but he would teach as well. Isaiah 40, verse 11. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd, and he shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom, and shall gently lead those that are with young. This picture of the great and good shepherd comes forth when Jesus says in Matthew 11, Come unto him, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and he shall give you rest. Take his yoke upon you and learn of him, for he is meek and lowly of heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Before we listen to the last, really the climax of the first section, his yoke is easy, I want to challenge you to consider your relationship with Christ. I have you taken upon him, yourself, his yoke. Because it's easy. See, it's not easy. There's all these rules. There's all... No. You've misunderstood what has just been declared. The glory of the Lord will be revealed. He will accomplish it. It doesn't say, look what I've done. Now you go out and do it. You go out and be faithful. It says, I've done it. That's why we can say it's easy. It's easy. It's not cheap. It costs Christ. But it's easy in that our trust is totally in Him. Not in our works, not in what we've done. Our acceptance is totally wrapped up in what Christ has done for us. That's the message of Christ from beginning to end. It's again emphasized here in this arrangement. Let's listen together in conclusion to this soft yet reassuring, His yoke is easy, the last song in the first section of Messiah.
church to be shy, no need for us to keep it under a bushel. Tell people. Tell them about Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. I thank you for the progression of your word that is so clearly laid out for us in this composition. Lord, we acknowledge it because it's faithful to what you have revealed. I pray, Lord, that you would give us a new encouragement for the great king that we serve. And it's been said that a lion doesn't need to be defended. Just let it out. I pray that we would just Proclaim Christ, that we would be bold to do so, confident to do so, excited to do so. It's what darkness needs. And I pray that we would be faithful in that way uh, in our own lives as a church uh, to affect this community and this world for the light of Christ. I thank you in his name and for his glory. Amen. Brothers and sisters, let's consider in worship uh, the child that has been given Number 213, as the elders come to prepare the table, verse 1 and verse 2. Let's stand as we sing, What Child Is This?
You may be seated. As we sing of this child that is born, we remember, too, that nails and spears pierced him and that his life began as a baby and ended on the cross. And Jesus, before he went to the cross, told his disciples that they would remember him through this sacrament. The Lord Jesus invites us to the same sacrament today, that all those who are trusting Christ alone for their salvation, who truly are at peace with God through Christ Jesus, to come and do this in remembrance of him. Faith is the requisite. If you're holding on to some good works, something that you have done or said, or some family membership in a church, whatever the case may be, come only in Christ, trusting in him. So Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He also took the cup after supper and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. It's shed for the remission of the sins of many. And as often as we drink this cup and eat this bread, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this sign and seal of the covenant of grace. We thank you for giving us this sacrament to feed us and grow us. Lord, set apart these elements from their common use to the sacred use for which you intend them. For the nourishment of our soul as we feed by faith. In Christ's name, amen. The elders will distribute the bread and we'd ask that you'd partake of that when you receive it. Symbolizing your personal response to the offer of the gospel. They'll then distribute the cup and ask that all would hold and we'll partake of that together. Symbolizing our unity in the blood of Jesus Christ.
at his birth, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we, through him, might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That great exchange took place for us. Our sin in exchange for his righteousness. What a terrible travesty it seems. But God fulfilled justice in sacrificing his own son to bring us his righteousness. The Lord Jesus took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. All that took place in the old covenant pointed forward to this new covenant that he would be the fulfillment of that promise to all nations of salvation through him.
Jesus Christ was bruised, crushed, and he was punished, not for anything that he had done, but because of what we had done. And so in our place, he stood a substitute, bearing the just sentence for our sin in his body on the tree so that we could have life. In the sacrament of communion, as we consider what Christ has done, remember that his death is your life. Do this in remembrance of him. Our hymn of dedication is 213. Let's stand together and sing the third verse of what child is this? Receive the benediction to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.